Well, today we continue our series called Goodbye God. And some of you may be saying, what is this series all about? I've never come to a church where you're saying goodbye God. It's more like hello God, not goodbye God. This series is has been constructed to respond to an article that came out in March of this year through the Barner Research Group. That article stated that one out of four Americans now identify themselves as either an agnostic, one who does not know if God exists, or a more formal definition of agnosticism would be one who doesn't know if God exists and we don't even know if God is knowable. To the other end, which would be a devout atheist, one who has concluded that God does not exist at all, nor will he ever exist at any time in the future. One out of every four Americans now identify themselves as such, either an agnostic or an atheist. What was interesting to me, and troubling to me at the same time, was that two-thirds of that 25% of Americans claimed at one time that they identified themselves with Christianity, and no longer do so. They've moved away. They've rejected the tenets of the Christian faith, and now see themselves as agnostics, or atheists. They moved away for the following reasons. There are three. They no longer believe that the Bible can be trusted as the Word of God. We spent several weeks demonstrating how it could be through the empirical evidence that we have of the Greek manuscripts behind the New Testament and the reliability of the manuscripts behind the Old Testament. We showed and demonstrated how we could get all the way back to the originals through those transmissions. Secondly, we demonstrated that the Bible was a historical book, showing how close to the actual events we could actually trace back, even though it's been 2,000 years since the actual events have occurred. And thirdly, we demonstrated that the Bible was supernatural in nature, that the authors of the Bible, inspired by the Holy Spirit, wrote and recorded things that they were impo- it was impossible for them to know at the time, demonstrating God's working in and through these individuals just as he stated he did. Their second objection came to the church. That the church is no longer necessary for the fabric of our society. It's lost its integrity. And we spent several weeks demonstrating what the church is, what the purpose of the church is, and confronting some of the problems that we currently find within the church today. And today we continue with their third objection. Their third objection is summarized as such that they believe that the world has sufficiently explained away the necessity for Christianity, and more specifically, that of God. The dominant secular worldview of today, God is not a part of. And therefore, there is no need to acknowledge Him, to worship Him any further. We don't need God. Because of these three reasons... Individuals have moved away from their identity in the Christian faith and have embraced a position of agnosticism or atheism. We are going to continue this morning addressing their third objection in a message that we've entitled, For the World Tells Me So. Growing up in this nation, many children learned a song either at church and possibly even in the public schools at one time. For Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. That song has been rewritten and is now being embraced by millions. Jesus' nonsense, this I know, for the world tells me so. And that is where we derive the nature of and the title of today's message, So the World Tells Me So. Because of the dominance of the secular worldview in our society today that no longer includes God, we discovered that many have contributed to this renewal of this worldview. As it's stated in the Barna Report, It says many of these ideas are initiated and promoted and reinforced by celebrity personalities and media exposure. There has arisen a new 
satrum of anti-religious celebrity apologists that include Bill Maher, Sam Harris, Richard Dawkins, Stephen Hawking, Peter Singers, Woody Allen, Philip Roth, Julia Sweeney, and the late Christopher Hitchens. It's a chicken or the egg conundrum to identify which came first, the atheist celebrity or the uptick in the number of atheists. Whatever the case, atheism has shifted in the past 50 years from a culture of an, that anathemized it to something that the cool kids are doing today. So once atheism was rejected at one time in our nation, today it's something that individuals hold to. And I will argue that atheism or agnosticism is the cornerstone of the new secular developed worldview. What is a worldview? In the broadest sense, a worldview is the standard by which an individual consciously or unconsciously interprets all data as so to maintain a consistent and coherent understanding of the whole of reality. A worldview acts like a filter that it screens and analyzes all categories of information so that we can make sense out of the world. It is the frame of reference from which we discern truth from falsehood, make rational decisions, and formulate ethical and religious values. Worldviews are made up of certain presumptions and assumptions that an individual believes to be true. For the Christian, our worldview is developed through the Bible. I call it a biblical worldview. At one time it was called a Christian worldview. But today there are liberal Christians who are trying to reinvent um, the Christian worldview to allow for some of the aspects of morality that the culture has adopted into Christianity. Since the world says those moral issues are okay, Christianity then must follow in suit. And they're changing a Christian worldview. So let's be more specific. We would consider what we hold to a biblical worldview, looking at the world around us through the lens of the scriptures. But those in the world have developed a worldview on their own. Everybody has one. Everybody has a worldview. They may know it or they may deny it, but everybody, the reality is that everybody has a worldview. Let me explain it this way, maybe illustrate it for you a little bit uh, simpler. How many of you use a computer on a daily or weekly basis? Raise your hand. How effective would your computer be if it was only the software itself? Nah, it wouldn't be any effective at all. It would be a, uh, just a, a, a mountain of formulas, of a collection of digital data, of zeros and ones. How many of your computers would be effective if you only had the hardware without the software? Now you just have a, a nice machine that beeps once in a while or turns on and off with a black screen or such. You must have both components to operate a computer properly. A worldview is like the software of a human being. Everybody has a worldview, just like any functioning, operating computer has software and hardware combined. So individuals have a worldview and their physical bodies that is moved by their worldview. But today we discover that our worldviews are drifting farther and farther apart. That is why they are looking at Christianity differently today than they did 25 years ago, 30 years ago, 50 years ago, 100 years ago, 200 years ago when this nation was formed. Even those who didn't uh, believe in God as we do were still theists and understood that God existed and they had great reverence and respect for the Bible for the most part. It was collective in that time and era. But today those worldviews are moving farther and farther apart and many Christians are feeling that separation today because it's manifesting itself in certain aspects of persecution. Not necessarily physical, but certainly intellectual persecution today. But this morning, I wanted to address an individual of our study specifically. And that is those atheists who may hear this study or that you may encounter. First, let me ask you, have you ever met an atheist? Raise your, raise your hand. 
Okay, with your hands still up, don't put them down yet. Are you positive that you met an atheist? Raise your hand. Keep them up. See? It's interesting how this dynamic changes. Now you may put your hands down. It's interesting how this dynamic changes. I have met so many people who claim to be an atheist, but by the end of our conversation, they acknowledge that they cannot know for sure that there is no God and therefore would have to admit that they're agnostic rather than being an atheist. An atheist, again, is one who has determined completely that God does not exist. And again, many of the celebrities of the neo-atheist movement in America today, such as Richard Dawkins, Christopher Hutchins, Bill Maher, etc., believe that there is no necessity for God any longer, that science has explained away all the phenomena that God is supposed to be responsible for, etc. But there's also another aspect of their mentality that is becoming more and more prevalent that you may have personally experienced yourself. And several of the atheists that I have spoken to, they have given me the impression that my intellectual development as an individual is stymied by my devotion to a God. That my Christian faith is limiting my ability to pursue rational intellectualism. Meaning I can't get any smarter because of my faith in Jesus Christ. Some are more aggressive in this and actually feel that one who embraces God is ignorant at best. And you truly cannot develop in your intellectual pursuits unless you are willing to abandon all understanding of a God. Is that true? Let me read a comment for you. Atheism forms its own standpoint, from its own standpoint, excuse me, has had to account for the persistence of belief in the existence of God. It has done so by evoking either general human characteristics such as mere gullibility or sentimentality or more specific mechanisms such as simple ignorance, J.I. Packer. Meaning that anyone who holds to a God is infantile in their intellectual development or more specifically as most atheists would consider it your intellectual evolution but is that true well many atheists hold to that viewpoint for example uh, the famous writer Ernest Hemingway stated all thinking men are atheists all thinking men are atheists or the Frederick Nietzsche who said faith means not wanting to know what is true. Is that true? Or the late Christopher Hitchens, in his book, God is Not Great, wrote, Our belief is not a belief, he says as an atheist. Our principles are not a faith. We do not rely solely upon science and reason because they are necessary rather than sufficient factors. But we distrust anything that contradicts science or outrageous reasoning. We may differ on many things, but what we respect is free inquiry, open-mindedness, and the pursuit of ideas for their own sake. What he is saying that a meta-narrative such as the understanding or the belief in God suppresses an open-mindedness of an individual or the ability for an individual to pursue any idea or thought. Before Christopher Hitchens died, he wrote this famous quote that he calls Hitchens 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believeth in him believeth in anything. Unquote. Meaning you're ignorant if you believe in a God, and you cannot uh, obtain or maintain any kind of intellectual pursuit 
because you are curtailed by a meta-narrative, by an overarching understanding that God exists, and there's a framework in which God has created. As one wrote, he stated, Alternatively, atheism has been argued for on the grounds of logical simplicity and economy. In Leasing's famous phrase, it is alleged that there is no need for hypothesis that God exists, since everything that exists can be explained in terms of science, scientific law, and human decisions. Again, I read this last phrase by Leasing. It is alleged that there is no need for the hypothesis that God exists, since everything that exists can be explained in the terms of scientific laws or human decisions. Are they right? Is a human limited in their intellectual pursuits simply because they embrace a God? Again, you will find that many atheists talk down to those who hold and embrace to an idea of God. But is it true? Do we have a demonstration throughout history that brilliant people have been Christians? Also, And the answer is yes. Let me just name a few for you. There was an interesting individual, you may have heard of him, who fully believed in God and his son Jesus Christ, and his name was Isaac Newton. (laughs) Discovered the law of gravity and the law of motion. There's another individual who is a renowned mathematician and astronomer who discovered that there was planetary motion that the planets orbited one another, etc. And he even developed a new reflective telescope to see the handiwork of God. His name was Johannes Kepler. How about Galileo himself, known to be one of the most prominent scientists of all times, mathematician, scientist, physicist, and astronomer, or René Descartes, the father of modern philosophy who held dearly to his faith in Jesus Christ, or Nicholas Copernicus, the astronomer and mathematician that wrote for the very first time that the earth rotated around the sun, rather the sun around the earth. Brilliant men who embraced their Christian faith, who, I will argue, are the foundational pillars in which science is built on today. But what about today? Do we have brilliant people who are Christians? Let me just name a couple for you. Dr. Stephen Myers is turning the world upside down, a molecular biologist who wrote a book called The Signature of a Cell, who demonstrated, I think, superbly that there is no possible way that we could have been a mere accident but a designer and that an intelligent one at that has designed us and created us. Stephen Myers has written papers for the Smithsonian Institution peer-reviewed journals. He has written two famous books that have truly turned the scientific community upside down. That is The Signature of a Cell and Darwin's Doubt. World Magazine just recently, in the last few years, called him the Daniel of our day. But there's another individual I think is also quite impressive. You may have seen him this Thursday on national television. He is one of 19 Republican candidates for president. Soft-spoken man. And sometimes I think he gets lost in the crowd of politicians and, of course, the overarching personality of Donald Trump. You're going to vote for him too? So am I. (laughs) How many would like to see Donald Trump get into the White House, sit behind the Oval Office chair, and look at the entire country and go, you're fired? Okay, it's pretty tempting. I'm being facetious, of course. But this man introduced at the Republican debate had criteria like none other candidate that stood behind those podiums that day. Soft-spoken man. A man who served as the chief neurosurgeon of John Hopkins University. In the 1980s, he invented a manner of separating Siamese twins that was brilliant. 
as other surgeons would watch his hands work on the small infants. They were amazed at how delicate his hands were and the brilliance that he brought to the surgery room. And they introduced him to all the people, not with his pedigree of his political accomplishments, but as the chief neurosurgeon of John Hopkins, which I think you'd have to be pretty smart to become, don't you? But did you also know that he holds 67 honorary doctorates? And I'm speaking of Ben Carson, Dr. Ben Carson. One of my favorite movies is a movie that was based upon his life starring uh, Cuba Gooding Jr. called Gifted Hands. If you'd like to see a good movie, watch this. Dr. Ben Carson is, leaves no doubt to where he stands in his faith with Jesus Christ and believes that it is understanding of God that allowed him to perform those intricate surgeries on those delicate children. Brilliant man. This is just a, a small little microcosm of all that are out there that certainly have not been persuaded or stunted or stymied in their intellectual development due to their Christian faith. That is a fallacy that I reject completely because I believe that the pursuit of all intellect, all knowledge, begins with the fear of God. So let's turn the tables on our atheist friends and ask them, is your atheism logical? Can you demonstrate your atheism logically? And as we are introduced to this subject, we understand that God versus atheism lays out for us a duel of worldviews. Atheism is a worldview that denies the existence of God, and more specifically, traditional atheism argues that there never was and never will be a God. But is this position logical? That is the question. If we are going to be told by our atheistic friends that logic is the only way to pursue life and logic only leads to atheism, then atheism must be qualified by logic, correct? Can they do it? The answer is no, they cannot. Why do I say that? Because atheism positively affirms that there is no God, but can atheists be certain of this claim? You see, to know that a transcendent God does not exist would require perfect knowledge of all things, wouldn't it? Omniscience. To know for certain that God does not exist, you have to be omniscient yourself, and that is a quality of who? To obtain this knowledge, you would have to simultaneously have access to all parts of the universe at one time. That's omnipresence. Therefore, as an atheist, to be certain of this claim, you would have to possess God-like characters. The only reason we know of omniscience or omnipresence is because of God himself and the nature that he exists in. Obviously, mankind's limited nature precludes these special abilities in and of themselves. An atheist's dogmatic claim, therefore, is clearly unjustifiable. The atheist is attempting to prove a universal negative in terms of logic, and this is called a logical fallacy. I'm going to read that again to make sure you heard it. The atheist's dogmatic claim is therefore clearly unjustifiable. The atheist is attempting to prove a universal negative in the terms of logic that is called a logical fallacy. They can't do it. They cannot say with certainty that God does not exist. And if they cannot say with certainty that God does not exist, then they are no longer an atheist. They are what? An agnostic. The atheist worldview is inadequate for many other reasons as well. For example, an atheist cannot adequately explain the existence of the universe. Like all other things, the world in which we live cries out for explanation, which is clearly beyond itself. However, the atheist is unable to provide one. We are still dealing with the theory of evolution, which is still a what? 
theory. 2,000 years now since Christ came. And then the 4,000 years before that, we are still dealing with a theory to replace the knowledge of a creation that God has orchestrated. Second, the atheistic worldview is unable to provide the necessary preconditions to account for all the laws of science, the universal laws of logic, and of course, absolute moral standards. They cannot account for these things. The access and the ability to reason and to use logic itself and to think logically cannot derive from accidental evolution. The reasoning that they use to consider themselves logical is a gift of God. No other system can allow for such a thing. For a computer to compute, as we used the illustration earlier, for a computer to compute, we already know it's two pieces, right? It's a software and a hardware together working in conjunction. But here's the other thing about a computer. The computer has to have data put into it first before it can have data come out of it, doesn't it? That's required. Stating very clearly that there's something outside of the computer itself working. So for these people to simply be able to reason, reason must have originated somewhere, and in the evolutionary process, that is impossible. Then they make excuses, and they try to derive ideas of how logic can develop otherwise through society and so forth, but they fall so short of any kind of consistency that it's impossible for them to stand on such fallacies. As one atheist stated very clearly, I use logic and therefore I am an atheist. The atheist makes our point for us but does not supply a solution to the atheist logic problem. The reason that an atheist can reason is because God gave him the mind and gives him the access to reason. God's reign falls on the just and the unjust. Using logic or any other form of reasoning does not require belief in the source of that logic or reason. God is the source of reason, wisdom, knowledge, and understanding, but God shines his light on every person. Some people misuse this light, but God is merciful. So in short, atheist worldview cannot account for the meaningful realities of life. What is logic? It's a science. A science that deals with the principles and the criteria of validating of inferences and demonstrations. The science of formal principles of reasoning. A proper or reasonable way of thinking about or understanding something. A particular way of thinking about something. The science that studies the formal processes used in thinking and reasoning. As Norman Geisler said in his book concerning reason, logic is the study of right reason. That's the main point, he says. Logic is a study, an ordering of how to think rightly or how to find truth. Paraphrasing this, we might say logic is a way to think so that we come to the correct conclusions. This could not have originated in and of themselves. The whole ability to reason and to logic is beyond the capability of any human himself and must have been inputted to him. Regardless of the surroundings, the educational path that an individual takes, reasoning must be there at the moment. If an individual atheists are serious about truth, When it comes to God, let them consider the claims of Christ. The claims of Christ. Christ made some extraordinary claims about himself and backed it up. He claimed to be none other than God in human flesh. This astounding claim was supported, however, by his matchless personal character. He was perfect. His fulfillment of predictive prophecy, his incredible influence on human history, and most importantly, the historical fact of his resurrection from the dead. If you're going to apply your logic to anything, apply him to the claims of Christ and decide for yourself if he is who he says he is. 
the evidence is definitely there for skeptics to an- analyze. As Francis Schaeffer wrote, the noted apologist stated, God is there and he is not silent. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Ultimately, man does not deny the existence of God for lack of evidence, he says, but because man does not want to be accountable to his creator. Now the rubber hits the road. It's not due to lack of evidence that God exists, that they reject the idea of God. It's because they don't want to be subjected to their creator. Why? Jesus said it beautifully, right? They ran from the light because they loved darkness more. And so it's more efficient and expedient for them to simply negate God altogether. I don't want to deal with the reality of God is what they are saying. The evidence clearly cries out that God exists. But they don't want to, they don't want to hear it or see it. They suppress it. They walk away from it. God says, if you seek me, you will find me. It's because they don't want to be subjected to their creator. The light of the revelation of God's truth illuminates their hearts and they see how desperately wicked they are and do not want to repent of that wickedness and sin and come to their Savior by faith. Paul made it abundantly clear that God cries out to his creation through his creation from the outward and cries out to his creation from the inward through the conscience of man. So what I'm saying is this. The evidence for God is clear through the creation itself and also through the conscience itself. If you turn with me to Romans chapter 1, I invite you to begin with me in verse 18. As Paul sums this up clearly for us in this text. And as you read along with me, please listen to the words. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has showed it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without what? Excuse. The creation itself screams that there is a creator. This is why the theory of evolution has been so damning to cultures that have adopted it. If you will take just a moment, I ask my atheist friends to do this, if they would take just a moment to understand the implications of evolution on any culture or society, they will discover quickly and without any doubt that it begins the erosion of that culture. But it's yet, it amazes me that today in America we are still shocked when individuals act like animals towards one another. I say to them, why are you shocked? Why are you appalled at such interaction between humanity? Why does it take you back that they act like animals? We've been telling them that they are animals from the, from the beginning. So why shouldn't they act as animals, right? But if you understand the creation, that God instituted and initiated it all, and He was the great architect, and there was purpose and meaning behind it all, and that there's a plan, and man rebelled against God, and man was in a place of desperation and despair and hopelessness, and if it wasn't for God, we would have remained there. But God intervened because of His grace. 
And as you read the book of Genesis through, you see that that plan begins to unfold and begins to uh, softly cry out as, as he continues chapter by chapter. And then all of a sudden, by the time you get to Matthew, it climaxes. God created a nation that one may come forth from that nation. And through that one, all the sins of the world would be dealt with. And the sin that even corrupts creation itself will be dealt with through the incredible act of his sacrifice that was validated in his resurrection. But listen in verse 21 as we continue. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. They claimed to be wise. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Isn't it unbelievable to know that every deity that has ever been created by man resembles something within the creation itself? Think about that. When a deity was created, it was a hybrid of animals and man and so forth, or woman and a hybrid of animals, but it was always depicted of the creation itself. Isn't it interesting that even when we move into the realm of science fiction, isn't it interesting how many aliens actually look like us? They have a head, they have hands, they have arms, they have legs. I mean, even E.T. was a squashed version of the same thing, right? It's because we're, we're pulling everything from the creation. And that's what Paul's saying here. But notice this word, he uses it twice, this word foolish. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. It is a reference to a Hebrew word that we're going to talk about in a moment, but he is not belittling them, but he's saying that in this case, the foolish person knows what is right, but isn't doing what he knows to be right. If you have children, you will know that they often can act foolish, right? My dad would still say that about me, even though I'm 47. My dad would say, you're you're foolish sometimes. You know what the right thing to do is, and you don't do it. You're foolish. They know what the right thing is, and they don't do it. How many of you have been guilty of knowing what the right thing is and not doing it? We all have been. We all understand that position. But they claim to be wise. They know what they're doing. But it's foolishness to God. The psalmist wrote in Psalm 19, 1-4, listen to these words again, and I'll read them to you. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and uh, night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words, whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out throughout the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them, he has set a tent for the sun. The proclamation of the existence of God throughout his creation. As David looked at the handiwork of God and said, The heavens declare the glory of God. But it isn't creation itself, which is an incredibly persuasive argument for the existence of God. But what about a man's conscience, a woman's conscience? As Paul moved into Romans chapter 2, he begins to make the argument that even the Gentiles who did not have the law as the Jews did, when they acted according to the principles of the law because it was written on their own hearts, They acted in accordance to the law. What does he mean by that? Have you ever wondered what formed your conscience? Now, I'm not talking about what formed the opinion of your conscience. But part of the formation of the conscience is the conscience itself. What has instilled in you a conscience? Why do you have a conscience? It's an echo of Adam. When Adam moved and he sinned and he began to eat of that fruit, that forbidden fruit, the knowledge of good and evil had been instilled in him and for everyone after him. It was the fallen 
knowledge. It was conceived in sin, but all of us have a conscience now to that fact. And there are universal ideas that the conscience holds to that restrain an individual from doing some outlandish things. And often when someone does something so hideous or horrific, individuals ask, how is it possible that their own conscience did not restrain them at that moment? Why do you have a conscience? It's an echo of Adam that from the beginning demonstrated that there is a God and that right and wrong exists. Listen to what one commentator wrote from Moody. God created humanity with a sense of right and wrong. And while Adam's fall damaged that, it did not erase it altogether. One's moral code may be as rudimentary as treating everyone fairly or to be nice to everyone. That moral code is an imperfect reflection of the morality God instilled in humankind. Seen most clearly in the law, the problem is that no one lives up to whatever moral code he or his culture approves. As a result, their conscience bears witness to how well they have kept their own moral code and will excuse or defend them on the day of judgment. Each one's conscience will say, you kept your moral standards when you did this and this, but the conscience will also say, you broke it here and here and here, as Paul wrote in Romans two fifteen and 16. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness. And their conflicting thoughts accuse or excuse them. On that day, according to my gospel, God judges the secret of man. Is man justified? Is he placed in a right standing by holding to a moral conscience? No, because it's impossible to do so. With the illumination of the law to mankind, we understand that the law must be held to perfectly, and no one can do that. That was the reason for the necessity of a Savior. But there's a remnant of that conscience. There's an echo of that conscience in every person that governs them between right and wrong and restrains them at any given time. I asked you at the beginning, have you ever met an atheist? And all of you, many of you raised your hand. Then I asked you if you were sure that if you had met an atheist and your hands went down because they cannot be certain that God does not exist. But what about these neo-atheists that have become the celebrities that have perpetuated this movement across our land? Let me give you one for example. In his famous book that has taken our universities by storm, The God Delusion by Richard Dawkins. You would think that if anyone was a clear-cut atheist, it would be Richard Dawkins. In fact, he has actually been called by some as the world's most famous atheists. You may have seen him as he dealt with the individual who put the, the movie forward, Expelled, who believes that Evolution has explained away God completely. However, though, in 2012, in his debate with the Archbishop of Canterbury, there was a moment within the debate that the audience was stunned there on Oxford University. Silence had gripped the auditorium. You could hear a pin drop after the statement was made by Richard Dawkins himself and was completely unanticipated by everyone who was watching and listening to the debate. As one wrote concerning this, there was great surprise when Professor Dawkins acknowledged that he was less than 100% certain of conviction that there is no creator. The philosopher Sir Anthony Kenny, who was the chair of the discussion, interjected, Why don't you then call yourself agnostic? And Professor Dawkins answered that he did. An incongruous Sir Anthony replied, You are described as the world's most famous atheist. And Professor Dawkins said that he was 6.9 out of 7% sure of his beliefs. I think 
the probability of a supernatural creator existing is very, very low, but not impossible. What? He then went on to say that he also believes that it is highly likely that there is life on other planets. And this is the spokesperson that people are formulating their atheistic views after. When he himself has openly stated he cannot be sure making millions of dollars off of his book called The God Delusion, where at every moment in time he tries and tries continuously to erode anyone's interest or curiosity into the Christian faith. The psalmist had something to say about people like Richard Dawkins. It's found in Psalm 53, 1-3. For the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Nabal, the fool. Nabal, the fool. It's an arrogance, a pride that is found in that. That true intellectualism is stunted because of they're resistant to the idea of God. The fool says in his heart, the one who knows that God does exist and rejects him, the one who knows what is right and does not do it, the fool, Nabal, he says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt, doing abominable iniquity. There is none who does good. God looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand who seek after God. They all have fallen away. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. The atheist cannot make the claim that there is no God and therefore must acknowledge himself as an agnostic, which then brings you into a different playing field altogether. Point him then to the creation. Point him then to their conscience and have them wrestle with those things through the word of God. Some of you may have children that grew up in the church who have walked away. They got into college. They got into university. And they walked away from the faith in Jesus Christ. And you wonder, is there any hope for them? This whole story reminds me of the life story of one of my favorite authors. Growing up as a young man, he grew up in a Christian home and embraced the Christian values that his parents had. When he got into his education and, be, and they discovered how brilliant this young man was, he began to be surrounded by naysayers of the Christian faith and by those who were pure atheists. The atheists then challenged him to look at the world around him and don't you see the cruelty? Don't you see the suffering? How is it possible that a God exists? And at 17 years old, he made it absolutely clear that he rejected the idea of God altogether. But then he went to university. And in his time in university, though being with those who held atheistic views, there were also some on campus who held to a Christian, biblical worldview. And those Christians began to challenge him on his atheism. And throughout his writings, he gives glimpses into this period of time in his life. In one of his books, he, he wrote this, My argument against God was that there was a universe that seemed so cruel and unjust. Just how I, had I gotten this idea, though, of just and unjust? A, a man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. What was I comparing the universe with when I called it unjust? Thus, in the very act of trying to prove that God did not exist, in other words, that was the whole reality, that whole reality was senseless. I found I was forced to assume that one part of reality, namely my idea of justice, was full of sense. And consequently, atheism turns out to be too simple. If the whole universe has no meaning, if that is true, he says, we should never have found out that it has no meaning. If the universe itself has no meaning, then we as individuals should have never discovered the reality of that truth. That's what he's saying, and he's absolutely right. We cannot come to that conclusion in and of ourselves if there is truly no meaning to it all. We cannot deduce that. We cannot conclude that. 
Later, he wrote in another one of his works, God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks to our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to arouse a dead world. In the early 1926, the hardest-boiled atheist that he ever met or knew sat with him in a room and remarked that the evidence for the historicity of the Gospels was surprisingly good. Rumthing all that stuff about God, the dying God, rumthing, and almost looks as if he had really had once died. If he is the cynic of cynic, the toughest of the tough, were not, as I would have put it, safe, where was I to turn? Where's there no escape? And then he went on to write again. If I find myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I have made for myself another world entirely. And at the age of 17, he wrote his friend, and he said, I believe no religion. There is absolutely no proof for any of them, he said at 17. From a philosophical standpoint, Christianity is not even the best. Yet 15 years later, he wrote that same friend back. Christianity is God expressing himself through what we call for real things. Namely, and actually, the incarnation, the crucifixion, and the resurrection. Later, the same individual made a statement about Jesus Christ. That he was either a lunatic, a liar, or a lord. And I am speaking none other than the great author C.S. Lewis himself who went from a Christian home to an atheistic position to a theist and back to Christianity. And one of the individuals on the way that pushed him back into the understanding that God exists was Tolkien himself, who you know for writing The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings. And of course, when C.S. Lewis came back to his Savior and embraced him, a book was written that changed the world called Mere Christianity. And then he went on to write the Chronicles of Narnia and the other vast number of works. This is C.S. Lewis. So I ask you again, my atheistic friends, is it true that our intellectualism is stymied by our belief in God? Have his, has it been suffocated by my belief in God? Or has it been enhanced because of my faith in Jesus Christ? For C.S. Lewis, he did his best work after coming to faith in Jesus Christ. Our atheist friends must wrestle with creation, their own conscience, and the certainty of knowing that there is no God. And when they cannot get past these three enormous, immovable hurdles... Though they want to write it off and displace it altogether, the reality of the fact is this, that God exists and has showed himself purely to those who will seek him.